Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org webinar, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. Okay, it's uh, 7 o'clock, so let's get started. Good evening, everyone. My name is John Moser. I am professor of history as well as co-chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program here at Ashland University. I'd like to welcome you all to Documents in Detail. This is Teaching American History Org's newest webinar series. And in each episode, we're going to do a deep dive into a single document discussing the historical, literary, and rhetorical aspects of it while also analyzing the document's impact on American history, people, and thought. TeachingAmericanHistory.org is a project of the Ashbrook Center, a nonpartisan nonprofit based at Ashland University. We provide a variety of programs and resources for teachers of American history, government, and civics, all based on primary documents. In the next week, you will receive an email with a link to request a certificate of participation as well as a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. To help us begin to think about the topics of this year's webinars, we are drawing speeches, letters, and writings from the Ashbrook Center's extensive document database, which is available at tah.org. You can participate in the discussion by typing your question into the chat window at the bottom of your screen at any time. The subject of today's program is Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, and to help discuss it, uh, we, uh, we, are, we hope we are going to have two speakers, Dr. Joseph Fornieri, Professor of Political Science at Rochester Institute of Technology, although he's not here quite yet, and Dr. Eric Sands, Associate Professor of Government at Berry College. So we hope that Professor Fornieri will join us whenever he gets here but there's no reason why we shouldn't just jump into the uh, into the material. Dr. Sands, how are you this, this evening? Doing well, how are you? I'm terrific, thank you very much. Well, I was uh, doing some poking around in the, into the second inaugural. This is not uh, my, uh, my major area of expertise at all. Um, and uh, read it over and all the read over all the documents for this evening's, uh, these evening's event. And, uh, and first of all, I'm struck by how brief the second inaugural is. Uh, I find, however, that it is only the third briefest of the inaugural addresses. The briefest was uh, uh, was uh, uh, George Washington's second inaugural, and the second shortest was uh, Franklin Roosevelt's fourth inaugural. So it does not, even though it is very brief, it does not have the distinction of being the briefest or even the second briefest. What then is so important about the uh, about the second inaugural address of Abraham Lincoln that deserves our attention tonight. Friends, can you hear me? I'm sorry. Uh, am I am I here? I I can hear you fine, Joe. And I, 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 I apologize. I, I had some problem connecting. I have a, another mag class at at eight fifteen, so I'm going to have to uh, cut out a little early. Okay. Um, but can you? Is my audio okay? Your audio sounds just fine. Okay, I've, I've been having problems with it uh, lately. So again, oh, oh please, uh, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, go ahead. I really, we, we just got started. I only threw out a, a, a very introductory question. What is it so, what is so important about Lincoln's second inaugural that it merits our attention this evening? Does, so, does someone wanna go? Uh, either one of you, feel free to jump in on that. Um, I th I'll, I'll, I'll start. I think it's, you know, it can rightfully be considered one of Lincoln's greatest speech speeches. And for me, it's greatness consists in the, uh, theological vision that is put forth and how Lincoln is recognizes the role of divine providence in human affairs. Uh, through this cataclysm of civil war, and yet at the same time um, resist the temptation to identify his will or the human will 
with the divine will. That's quite remarkable. We have to remember that this was a, a highly religious uh, culture at the time that had been formed by the second great awakening and that each side was invoking the divine to justify uh, its own interpretation of the war, its own interpretation of slavery. Lincoln, Lincoln's um, uh, depth of mind uh, leads him to contemplate really the the overarching meaning of this conflict, and I you know it certainly was dissatisfying to some you know as he says um, to to uh, um, the the journalist there Noah Brooks that uh, some are not be, uh, flattered by being shown that there's a uh, a difference between the human and the divine will. So one could look at this speech, you know, in terms of its its rhetoric, and, and I don't mean rhetoric in a pejorative sense. The the uh, uh, biblical language and symbolism and imagery that's woven into it, but also for me in terms of its content, um, and and finally kind of relying upon, um, you know, invoking the uh, higher power. Uh, in, in faith to heal the nation's wounds. And finally, I see this as an expression. For me, it's interesting because I do see it as expression, as Reinhold Niebuhr did, of Lincoln's living faith. I think there's a remarkable continuity between uh, the public expression of Lincoln's faith uh, in, in this address and some of the uh, private expressions of his face, for example, and what's been known as the meditation on the divine will that was discovered in his manuscripts. Oh, I'm sorry, it, I think it is. It, it, yeah, and it was it was in one of his um, uh, notebooks after his death. So I, I've said quite a bit there. I know it's a lot to chew on. I want to give everybody an opportunity to talk. So that's uh, I'll just start off. Thank you. Okay, Professor Sands, what did you care to add? Yeah, I, I mean, the only thing I'd add to that, and I mean, those are all you know great reflections on on the significance of the speech. I mean, it, the other thing I'd, I'd point out is there's nothing else like it in American history. Uh, I mean, this is just a singularly unique um, speech that's that, that's given here. Um, it's certainly more analogous to a sermon than it is to a speech um, uh, in its own right. Um, you know, Lincoln invoking uh, the, the Bible and, and quoting from the Bible directly, uh, certainly a number of presidents had invoked the name of God in their speeches, uh, prior to Lincoln, uh, delivering this one, but only one president had ever directly quoted from the Bible. And then that had been John Quincy Adams. Um, and, you know, not in a way that we would talk about as being significant, uh, in, in the way that Lincoln does. Um, so again, this is this is just so exceptional, and and as as a lot of times my students point out, you know they they can't imagine a president delivering a speech like this today. Uh, the, 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 it would just be inconceivable um, for a president to, to to try to speak in in this type of language, to try to address the nation in in this kind of way. Um, so the fact that, that Lincoln is is able to do that with with again a very different kind of audience in in the 19th century. Uh, than we've got in the 20th. Um, there's just a lot that is is very remarkable and and very unique about what Lincoln uh, attempted to accomplish, and I think did accomplish uh, in the speech overall. Well, you, both of you have mentioned uh, this as a reflection of uh, of Lincoln's faith, and this gets to a question that I had, and also one of our one of our viewers has uh, has asked: uh, To what extent is this a is this reflective of, of, a, of a personal religious transformation that Lincoln underwent during the Civil War? Uh, we know that earlier in his career, he was not, he, he was not a, uh, a particularly religious person, uh, but certainly we find it uh, front and center here. What sort of religious transformation did we see going on in Lincoln? That's a great question. Uh, Eric, I just want to say hello. Uh, it's great to see you, miss you. We need to keep in better touch. Yes, indeed. <laughs> My brother. Um, are you in Georgia right now? Yes. All right. Give my best to Peter Lawler. I will do right. so. Right. We'll, we'll, we'll be in touch. Um, that is, a, that is a, a great question. It's a, it's a question um, 
that I, I think is leads has led to a lot of controversy. There are those uh, kind of presented a rival interpretation. There are those who think that Lincoln's uh, invocation of religion, um, especially in in this address, was simply for political utility. Now, you know, certainly religion can be useful in politics, um, and uh, statesmen throughout uh, human history have invoked religion to buttress their cause or to buttress political and, and moral stances here. But I, I would disagree with that. I think that that it's not only is it is it is it useful in the sense uh, where um, it it appeals to charity and a higher power. Useful doesn't necessarily mean untrue, but I think it is an expression of of that living faith, which I think you know I cannot I cannot point to a moment where Lincoln had we can document some conversion experience. He, I think, inclined towards skepticism uh, in his youth. He had, had written a book on skepticism. I'm, I'm persuaded of that. Um, he would he would taunt um, the frontier preachers. But in, in my judgment, the man was always a seeker. And, and, you know, as his wife mentioned, religious by nature. And I think there was a deepening Perhaps through the 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 suffering caused by the war, um, his own his own existential quest for meaning in in view of that uh, suffering, but there was some foundation, right? He had read the Bible, um, he had um, he had um, engaged in in dialogue with um, uh, a a. Uh, a preacher who who wrote a book on um, reconciling uh, the miracles in the Bible with uh, reason. James Smith was his was his name. Lincoln had read his work after the death of his uh, first son when they were in Illinois. So I think that there there was a deepening, and there's evidence to support that. For example, his his uh, the religious uh, nature of of his writings. Um, his attendance at New York Avenue Presbyterian Church with uh, Phineas <clears throat> Phineas um, Gurney, and the fact that one thing Ron, Ron White has written a beautiful book on the Second Inaugural that I encourage everyone to read. It's called um, Lincoln's Greatest Speech. I think it's a beautiful work, and I'd encourage it. It's a great read. Um, he he does really he does justice to the to the work. But he uh, has been able to show that that Lincoln attended private prayer services um, there. That he was in a um, you know would go there on a consistent basis in a private room and pray where no one could see him. So I think I, I guess I would use the word that there was a a deepening of this faith during during the war, perhaps because of the suffering, the death of his son. These are the experiences that that really they can lead us to uh, atheism. They could lead us to despair, or they could lead us to the soul's opening and and, and for for meaning in search quest for meaning in a much um, much more poignant manner. And I think that's what happened with Lincoln. Okay, uh, Professor Sands. Yeah, um, you know what I'd add to that is is uh, I. I Think, you know, there's that old saying that no one is an atheist in a foxhole. <laughs> and I'd add to that that I don't think anybody's really an atheist who has to order men into foxholes. And that's, that's, a, what, that's an interesting what, point. Yeah, that's, that's what Lincoln is doing during the war. Um, uh, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of, of casualties. And Lincoln has to bear the, the, the moral weight of all of that. Um, there, that's that's crushing, you know, without some sort of an outlet, without some way of putting that into context and, and helping him um, to, to understand what the purpose and, and the, the reason for all of this is. And that's why, you know, Joe, when you bring up the, the meditation on divine will, I mean, I think that's a really significant document. Yes. Um, because Lincoln didn't intend that to be read by anybody. I, this, this was something he wrote for himself. 
And a lot of the themes of the second inaugural show up in that meditation on divine will, um, talking about how yes. God can't be for and against the same side. Um, God may have his own purposes. Uh, this, this thing might be bigger than both of us. Um, and I, I think we see, even in 1862, when he's writing this, that Lincoln is, is you know, maybe not undergoing a religious conversion, but is maybe deepening in his, his faith, deepening in his understanding of the religious context of the war and in God's role in human affairs. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons this comes across so clearly by the time we get to the second inaugural is a lot of his thinking on this has crystallized at that point. Yeah, that's well put. First, I think I like the word uh, uh, crystallized. I call it the culmination of his political faith. Yeah. Um, that, uh, you know, uh, just a point, Eric, to, to add to what you say, um, it's often overlooked, and I don't understand uh, why, that um, Lincoln's secretaries, Nicholas, uh, Nicolay and Hay, when they published their massive biography on him, they included this. They were the ones that discovered this after his death, mm -hmm. and they included it in their um, biography is to to refute Herndon's or at least an extreme version of Herndon's claim that, that Lincoln was an atheist. You know, saying that and they say that this was not they actually used the word exoteric. This was not simply an ex uh, an exoteric. Um, utterance that was done to accommodate the religious prejudices of of the nation. This was done in the the um, sincere. Um, here, let me find the passage. Do you guys mind? Joe, is there any chance we could uh, get you on camera? I'm so embarrassed, you guys. Are you kidding me? I thought I was on camera. Uh, so, um, <laughs> I'm sorry. How do I get on camera? There's probably a little uh, icon that you press that looks um, like the camera. I'm so hopeless. And we'll get, uh, we'll get in the video. Um, you see it? There we go. I, I apologize to everybody again. Okay. I, I, I thought I thought I was on camera. This is uh, this is why I stick to acoustic guitar and mandolin. Uh, instead of electric. Uh, yeah, let me just quickly read this quote if you uh, get, get a chance. Um, uh, uh, please go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll track it down in a second. We have another question about uh, about how the uh, how the address was received uh larry fanta asks uh what what did republican circles think about the fact that lincoln said that the north also deserved punishment from god for the sin of slavery was this a was this a controversial statement eric do you want to field that yeah um it depends on which republicans you're talking about <laughs> um you know, sort of moderate Republicans re reacted to the speech uh, in, in uh, a fa fairly positive way. Um, newspapers reported on it quite positively. Uh, there, there wasn't really any uh, sense that, that Lincoln had, had betrayed the country. In fact, if anything, there was a, a, a sense that the speech put on display Lincoln's supreme mercy. Um, his, uh, that the, the fact he was willing to withhold judgment, uh, that he was not giving into vindictiveness, um, was all quite positive. Radical Republicans took a very different view on it. Uh, radicals wanted, wanted to punish the South for the war and did not react to the speech, uh, particularly positively. Um, and, uh, most, most of them were actually quite concerned about what this, uh, 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 what, what was going to happen in the future in terms of Lincoln's reconstruction policy, um, you know, based on this speech that seemed to seem to, to spread a spirit of reconciliation and, you know, binding up the nation's wounds and charity for all. 
Um, the, this wasn't language that the radicals were were particularly excited about. Um, and uh, uh, de Democrats just on the other side uh, weren't, weren't terribly enamored with the speech um, at all, but that wasn't really a surprise at the time. Um, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead, Joe. Henry Ward Beecher, who was a, the, you know, one of the luminaries uh, at the time is a, is a preacher, um, delivered a speech around the same time at, at Fort Sumter. And so you get a you get a sense of the contrast between Lincoln's second inaugural and the the civil theology in that speech to what some of the uh, 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 fire and brimstone preachers of the North were saying, but renowned. Uh, Beecher says, "I charge the whole guilt of this war upon the ambitious, educated, plotting political leaders of the South. They have shed this ocean of blood. A day will come when God will reveal judgment." and arraign at his bar these mighty miscreants. And from a thousand battlefields shall rise up armies of airy witnesses who with the memory of their awful suffering shall confront these miscreants with shrieks of fierce accusation. And every pale and starved prisoner shall raise his skinny hand in judgment. Blood shall cry out for vengeance and tears shall plead for justice and grief shall silently beckon in love and heart smitten shall wait for whale for justice and in the end he says um that uh, uh it shall be whirled aloft and plunged they shall be whirled aloft and plunged downward forever and forever in an endless retribution while god shall say thus shall it be to all who betray their country very very uh quite a contrast right uh well, this leads to a, a bit of a counterfactual question from Brian Evans. Um, oh, let me find it now. Oh, yeah. If Lincoln had lived, do you think that he would have been impeached or would he have handled the radical Republicans more successfully than Andrew Johnson did? It's a great care? question. And it's the beauty of uh, of counterfactual questions. You can't be wrong. Yeah, you know, I, I have no problem with counterfactual questions as a political scientist. So I think I know some historians are troubled by them. But I, I you know, nothing wrong with speculation, okay. as long as you make an argument one way or the other. Um, but I'm going to throw this out there. <laughs> I, I would like to think, no, I would like to think that, that um, Lincoln would have you know, part of his greatness was the ability to build a consensus as with the border states. And, um, you know, certainly Reconstruction would have presented new challenges, but given uh, the uh, character of Lincoln's statesmanship and his political prudence, the ability to apply moral principle under circumstances and his, his firmness yet at the same time flexibility I think um, he 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 may have uh, he would have avoided impeachment, and um, perhaps Reconstruction could have been more um, successful with with less of a of a bitter taste. But as I you know as as I read the the history of Reconstruction and over over the many 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 years, I see the the um, I see the the rectitude of the radicals' cause, at least in principle. Um, I, I, I it was something I've kind of switched my position on over the years. I would I was much more, uh, you know, sympathetic to the moderates, but I think that that extreme measures were required given um, what was what was occurring. Okay, Eric. Yeah, I. I... I think Lincoln would have very likely navigated those, those waters. I mean, one of the things we have to remember is that the radicals' numbers are not overwhelming in 1864. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, what, one of the things that bolsters their numbers significantly is Andrew Johnson. Um, so after Lincoln is assassinated, you know, Johnson reneging um, on his promise to pass the Freedmen's Bureau Bill and the Civil Rights Bill, and then turning around and vetoing <clears> them, and uh, 
radicals feeling you know, incredibly betrayed, and then Johnson coming out and actively running against radicals in the 1866 midterm elections, which backfired on him horribly. Um, and we end up with a massive number of radicals being elected uh, to Congress. Um, I, I, I think Lincoln could have navigated those waters <laughs> um, yeah. a, a lot better uh, than, than Johnson did. Uh, Johnson just was extraordinarily obtuse. Uh, had a lot of trouble reading um, the, the the political tea leaves around him, um, and was ingratiating himself so much to Democrats um, that uh, you know was was alienating himself um, from the Republican Party. I, I just don't see Lincoln making those kinds of mistakes. Well put, yeah, I think that's it, really it, well put. It seems to me, yeah, the fact that he was a not not just a, a Democrat but a, a Southern Democrat was was immediately going to hurt him in the eyes of. Uh, of of the uh, of the Republicans, he was suspect. Yeah, yeah. And he and he did everything he could. What's what's weird, and Joe, Joe can talk to this as as well, is after Lincoln was assassinated, the radicals were actually excited and enthusiastic about Johnson becoming president, uh, because Johnson had articulated a viewpoint that we needed to punish the South and we right. needed to punish the leaders. Yes. Uh, for for the war, and so they were actually overjoyed. And in fact, one uh, I think James Ashley was uh, one of the ones who was quoted as saying, "By God, with Johnson in charge, we'll have no trouble running the government now." Um, yeah. he, those quotes that come back to haunt you. Later on well, he made he made some. Is this a progressive view of the world? That that, the, that there's a, a, a as uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said that. Uh, the, the, the arc of the universe uh, uh, bends toward justice. I, yes, but I would call it providential. Mm. Okay. I would call um, it providential. Biblical. Okay. Uh, another question. Um, you earlier uh, spoke of how this speech reflects uh, the, a, 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 a spiritual transformation, perhaps, in Lincoln. Um, but uh, Stacy Moses asked, does this, uh, might not this also be a reflection of the suffering of the country in the, uh, in the Civil War? Uh, Lincoln uh, had an uncanny empathy and understanding of the feeling and attitude of the country's populace. What do you think about that? Stacy, I think that's a great question. I, I see those as related. <clears throat> I definitely think Lincoln, Lincoln is, a, is a sensitive, empathetic individual on the one hand, but also uh, he has his, his steel resolve and steel will that, that, that he know, you know, he has to order hundreds of thousands to their deaths. But is, is, uh, is uh, Eric said it, I think it, he sees the suffering around him, he's absorbing it, and it's taking its toll on both him and the country. And I think there is this, this commiseration, if you will, between the 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 suffering of the of, of the country and the suffering of of the president that meet in this speech. All right, all right. Uh, another question. Uh, David Cedar asks the the last sentence of the uh, the second inaugural address refers to a quote a just and lasting peace unquote. This is something that struck me as well, being a a, a diplomatic historian. Um, th these words, just and lasting peace, show up again and again. I mean, Wilson used it. Uh, a number of American presidents have used it. Now we've, we hear it in the context of, of the Middle East. Um, was, did Lincoln, was Lincoln the first to use that precise language? Hmm. I mean, as far as I know, he was. Um, I, I don't know of anybody else who, who used this language mm -hmm. um, in, in a speech. It does seem reminiscent of Washington's uh, farewell address, uh, where he, he talks about our relation with you know foreign countries, aside from the uh, entangling alliance bit. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't know if he, he I, I don't think Washington uses that specific phrase, just and lasting peace. But it, I think there are parallels between between um, the language. Uh, uh, go ahead. No, I'm, I'm done. Eric, were you about to say something? No, I, 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 I had just. I, I think he's right about the uh, the, the parallels to, okay. uh, to, to, to Washington. So I mean, I, I think it's entirely likely. You know, Lincoln drew inspiration from a host of sources uh, for his speeches. 
Um, so not, it would, would not be uncommon at all for him to be, uh, you know, drawing from the speeches of the past. And, you know, um, I have a, that, that exact phrasing is right. one that I, as far as I know, was was Lincoln's. I have a sneaking suspicion, too, and I've, I've been uh, reading quite a bit of Webster. It sounds very Websterian. <laughs> well, uh, I, I don't know of the specific passage yet. Um, but one of our viewers is asking if uh, where we can find a copy of that sermon by H.W. Beecher. Um, that's a good question. I have I have it. Uh, can it, do you mind if I look at the? Go ahead. Um, it's on page forty-one of my book. <laughs> okay, there we go. Yeah, you get that, Joe. Is that okay, it's in paperback. Uh, Abraham Lincoln's political faith. There you go. All right. Uh, David Cedar asks, Lincoln's last public address argues against inflexible, inflexible reconstruction plans, uh, um, referring to the Louisiana plan, uh, but emphasizes that, quote, important principles may and must be inflexible, unquote. Um, do you don't, don't you think, therefore, that Lincoln's approach to Reconstruction would have allowed for as much flexibility as necessary to achieve essential goals, such as ending slavery, training and educating freedmen, etc.? Who are these people? We got some smart cookies out there. I love these questions. <laughs> this is great. We get all the best at teaching American history. Oh, I love it. I, I, who, who asked that question? David Again. Cedar. You know, it's it's. I don't see anybody's face. No, no. They're <laughs> Am all, I all able the to? They're all the questions are coming to me, and I am conveying them. So I could have oh. impressed the heck out of you by claiming it for myself. No, I love it. I can I can I take a, a stab at that, Eric, and then I'll yeah. pass it on to you. Um, I think that that um, the question is great, and it shows uh the the uh the person who asked it. Um, is wrestling with, I think, one of the key virtues that makes Lincoln great, that defines his statesmanship, and that is prudence or practical wisdom is classically understood by, by Aristotle and, and in particular by St. Thomas Aquinas, in my view. And prudence involves not only a consideration of those universal principles, th those inflexible principles that Lincoln speaks about, right? I mean, if there's a there's a moral line that you draw, right? When you cross that line, um, you, you've surrendered principle and you become a pragmatist, right? Um, uh, but prudence also considers, of course, the particular circumstances in which those, those principles are applied. So I think Lincoln would have been governed by the, you know, the principles of equality, um, in, in liberty, the, the Declaration was his moral compass, um, but he also, um, you know, would have recognized that politics is the art of the possible, right? Not the ideal. That's where he departs from some of the radical abolitionists whose utopian vision of politics may have undermined the very good that they sought to achieve. And so I think Lincoln would have been not pragmatic in which he everything would have been based on expediency. Uh, or cost-benefit analysis without reg regard to uh, enduring principles of, of moral right, but prudent, prudent principle, uh, and apply that principle as much as possible uh, under the circumstances. You know, very often politics is a, is, um, a, a matter of um, achieving as much, uh, as much good, not the perfect good. Um, as possible. I think that would have governed his his reconstruction policy. Eric, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that entirely. I mean, uh, you know, prudence was the, the, the guiding, you know, force behind Lincoln's statesmanship. Um, you know, the, the, the combination of doing what is best, but doing what is necessary. And and Lincoln, That's you know, well point to, to, you know found, found, found a way of balancing, balancing uh, between uh, the two. 
um, and you know, find find never losing sight of what is principled, what is right, uh, but at the same time also keeping an eye on you know what what is going to work and what what is is actually practical and um, what is what is possible. Uh, so um, yeah, I, I I think in terms of flexibility to reconstruction policy, there's no question Lincoln would have brought um, a, a great deal of. Uh, uh, of flexibility to that, uh, but uh, would not have compromised certain fundamental principles. There was a limit. Yeah, I I, um, I dislike the term pragmatist, and and very often Lincoln is referred to as a pragmatist. You know, when I when I when I meet people, it's one of the first things they well, you know, Joe, don't you think Lincoln was a pragmatist that he really um, was good as it, it reading the you know the the tea leaves and but didn't have any guiding principles and that, that fails to understand uh lincoln's statesmanship you know that that he was both principled and practical hence prudent mm -hmm. okay uh billy gallagher has another question in the last public address uh, lincoln seemed to want louisiana to be a model for reconstruction how many other states in the south were willing to follow this same plan of granting limited voting to blacks Hmm. Have we stumped our guests? Eric, yeah, I, I um, I, I'm. I mean, I, I, I don't know offhand. That's it's a hard question to answer because uh, there's there's kind of that counterfactual element there of um, if if the same plan in Louisiana had been implemented in Alabama, Mississippi, mm -hmm. you know, Georgia, uh, would it have been accepted? Uh, would it have have had the same kind of results uh, that it would have had in, in Louisiana. Um, I, I don't know. Um, you know, Louis, there was a lot about Louisiana that was very particular uh, to Louisiana. Um, and uh, to, to get into some of the areas of the Deep South uh, and try to uh, implement that kind of plan there, um, you know, the, I, I think there was the potential for much greater resistance, uh, the, the potential for uh, a lot more intransience uh, from the population. But, you know, we do have to kind of remember that, you know, this, this is kind of part of the tragedy of Reconstruction, is that at the end of the war, the South was thoroughly defeated. And, and I don't just mean that militarily. I mean, they were defeated economically. They were defeated spiritually. Um, uh, you know, they, they were willing to accept, you know, whatever the terms of defeat um, that was going to be handed out to them uh, by the North. And so there's this, this moment, this opportunity where, you know, if we have a coherent policy uh, and can, can bring it down, we perhaps can, can make a lot of progress. And instead, we end up with this very disjointed policy, um, and the South starts to get its back up again, uh, feeling like they're being uh, toyed with, feeling like they're, you know, being, you know, jerked around and stuff by uh, the, the different powers that be. And um, uh, that that's one of the things I think contributes to to why Reconstruction uh, becomes the mess that it does, is the, the moment where we sort of had the, the South on the ropes and, and willing to ex accept the you know, defeat. Uh, we didn't really take advantage of it in that moment, and clearly uh, Lincoln's assassination uh, in that moment and the transition to Johnson and everything plays a lot, uh, a big role in a lot of this. Hmm. Um, go ahead. Is there something else? Just that, just that uh, one of the reasons Louisiana was a model is because the, the North had taken parts of it early in the war, right, right. Uh, with Farragut's landing. So... Uh, remember, the war is still being, you know, it's it's either by by the time of Lincoln's second inaugural address that the war is still being fought. So, um, but you're speaking about his last address, yeah. The, the, but shortly afterwards, yep. There's a follow-up. Uh, didn't they? I'm not entirely sure what's meant by they. Just decide in Louisiana that the new government could give voting rights to blacks. It did not immediately grant such rights. Uh, at that time, not so many union states had not so many union states had black voting rights yet either. Yeah, that's the case. I mean, Massachusetts. Uh, I'm trying to think what states. I know Massachusetts had black voting rights. Frederick Douglass 
um, try to drop the property qualification in the state of New York, um, which had restricted black voting rights. Um, I'm trying to think what other um, Maine may have had it. Uh, but yeah, I think that's that is that is correct. In Lincoln writes, as we know, uh, a private letter to Nathaniel Banks, who's presiding over reconstruction in Louisiana. And he says that, you know, will he consider uh, providing giving the, the franchise to um, intelligent blacks and black soldiers? Uh, those that have that have fought. Now we need to keep in mind, prior to the Fifteenth Amendment, that um, suffrage was a right conferred by the states. We don't like to make, I think it's a bogus distinction, but it was a distinction that was well held at the time between inalienable rights um, in the Declaration, political rights of suffrage, and civil rights of citizenship. And political rights and civil rights were were at the discretion of the state governments. So Lincoln could exercise a moral steward, uh, uh, stewardship, but he certainly could not have compelled, uh, without the authorization of an amendment, uh, these states to confer suffrage upon African Americans. It had to be done um, by their own state governments. Okay. All right. Um, so far, we haven't brought the uh, the first inaugural address into this. So uh, perhaps we could lay the two uh, the two addresses side by side aside from the obvious that uh one is given before the before fighting has actually begun and the second is given uh when it's about over um what are the most uh, what are the most striking differences between these two addresses in terms of 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 emphasis in terms of how they reflect lincoln's thinking Um, in, in my view, the second, the first inaugural is um, much more tailored to the circumstance. I'm not saying that the second inaugural is not, it, it, but I think it's much more tailored to the secession crisis. It's highly legalistic, in my view. It provides a refutation of secession point by point. Um, whereas the second inaugural has this much broader perspective of in, in it's more reflecting upon what has what has happened in these four years. Okay. Eric, Eric? Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. Um, you know, uh, when you kind of take, uh, you know, Frederick Douglass's response, you know, to the two speeches as, as uh, direction um, for you know the differences between them I mean Frederick Douglass hated the the first inaugural address and you know, the second one he says you know this was a sacred effort um, which he, he meant in, a, in an obviously complimentary way um, you know the, the the first one was was formal it was legalistic um, you know but I, I think he had a, a slightly different purpose in mind um, trying to convince uh, these these other states from from not seceding, trying to convince the states that have seceded to to come back into the fold. Um, you know, there's another big difference between the two as well. That um, the first inaugural was, to my knowledge, the only speech Lincoln delivered uh, in which he solicited uh, a lot of help uh, in in writing it. Um, and he consulted uh, members of his cabinet and had a lot of input, a lot of editing help, um, uh, a lot of people who, you know, kind of uh, popped in and, and uh, uh, made contributions to, uh, uh, to, to what he had written, whereas the second inaugural was all him. I, nobody had any idea what he was going to say in that second inaugural address. It was, it was a surprise to just about everybody. Uh, when he came out and delivered it. And so Lincoln had a very clear sense of what the message was going to be the second time around. Uh, whereas the first time, I think he was he was struggling to figure out how to structure you know, his arguments and, and structure his language uh, to, to be as forceful and compelling, but at the same time as sympathetic and uh, as, as, as open as, as he possibly could. It, is it not also the, the case that this, uh, that this the first inaugural address was very much being directed to individual Southerners and residents of the border states who haven't yet committed themselves to secession. I think that's the case, yeah, particularly the border states, and in Virginia, which hadn't seceded yet. Mm -hmm. Sure. Virginia's Virginia's key 
mm -hmm. I think, in, in, in making that and making that address. I think the second augural, you know, this this uh, pondering of the divine will and the ultimate uh, meaning of this calamity makes it different than providing a, a constitutional justification for suppressing uh, the rebellion. Mm -hmm. But you know, clearly, there's a political intention too. It's not simply a, a theological speculation. He, he, you know, seeks to bind up, bind up the nation. And I think that Lincoln's, you know, we know that Lincoln's sincere here, right? You know, the story about how, um, you know, he, uh, if Jefferson uh, Davis could could get out of the country and sneak away without, you know, getting getting hanged, Lincoln would wink approve of it. Mm. Um, uh, and um, you know he he really um, uh, believed in in extending um, mercy towards the vanquished. Mm. Okay, that's very interesting. Uh, Larry Fada asks, uh, we're, we're in regard to the uh, first inaugural address. Uh, I've always been somewhat surprised by Lincoln speaking of the fugitive slave laws somewhat disingenuously. Those laws were being flouted, and and most, and certainly Lincoln must have known that. What's going on here? What's what 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 might his strategy uh, have been in in deliberately mischaracterizing the extent to which the fugitive slave laws were being followed? He says that he'll uphold the fugitive slave provision, and he's he's highly criticized for that, mm -hmm. right? Um, so it, 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 he says, it, you know, and it can be done as, as good as the moral sense of the community will will allow it, because it's such an odious act he recognizes in the North. But, you know, unlike unlike Chase and in, in, in some of the abolitionists in the Republican Party, Lincoln uh, believed he had a constitutional obligation to uphold the fugitive slave provision. However, if you read you read the first inaugural carefully. After he speaks of his obligation to uphold the Fugitive Slave Act, he then says that there's another passage in Article 4, namely the Privileges and Immunities Clause. And he suggests that he will extend federal protection to free blacks to prevent them from being uh, mistakenly dragged into slavery by the Draconian Fugitive Slave Act. Mm -hmm. So that was a remarkable civil rights um, speculation at that time, which he actually uh, converted into a policy by granting, having his attorney general uh, grant black citizenship um, during the war. And and certainly uh, Lincoln has, a, has another reason for bringing up the fugitive slave laws. He wants to remind the seceded states that slavery actually becomes less secure once uh, secession takes place, because then no one in the North is going to be obligated to... Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, uh, Eric, do you care to uh, add anything on this? Uh, no, I just think it's it's another example of, of Lincoln's prudence. Uh, once again, um, you, you know, a, a, he sort of a, the, the adherence to the law, um, but at the same time, finding that principled loophole <laughs> that's going to allow us to offer something like civil rights protection uh, from blacks, uh, you know, being uh, uh, exploited or, or manipulated under the, uh, the Fugitive Slave Act. Um, and, uh, you know, again, few, few politicians could navigate, you know, a, a clear channel between, uh, those, those very difficult, those, uh, very difficult options and Lincoln, you know, somehow finds a way. Yeah. Just a, just a point here. I've been, um, I live in Rochester, so I'm only about an hour from, uh, the Seward House, and I've been quite interested in, in, in Seward uh, the past year. And Seward actually opposed the fugitive slave provision. And he, uh, when he was governor of New York, he refused to return fugitive slaves mm -hmm. uh, back to the South. So he was, uh, this endeared him to abolitionists. It's interesting though, once he, he comes in Lincoln's cabinet, he gets, he gains the reputation as, as being uh, much more conservative than, of course, in the Johnson administration. But uh, before the election, I think it's interesting to contrast Lincoln with both Seward and Chase, uh, who are in his cabinet on the fugitive slave provision. Okay. Um, we are rapidly running out of time. There's one more question I'd like to get to from Ryan Kelly. Does the differences between the two addresses show 
Lincoln's development from a legal mind, due to his prior experience as a lawyer in the, uh, in the first, to the practical experience that a wartime president would experience and reflect upon in the second. Similar to all other second addresses, we hear a much more mindful inaugural address that is rooted in the experience gained during the president's first term. Is that what we're seeing here? Yeah, I think that's elegantly put. Um, yeah, I think there is some, there is some of that, but I also think that the the occasion of the first inaugural did demand a much more legalistic emphasis, given the South was making the case for claiming that the secession was justified on constitutional and extra constitutional grounds. Mm -hmm. Okay, Eric. Yeah, I'd add on to that, uh, that I think it, we also take into account, you know, what Lincoln is trying to accomplish in the second inaugural address. And, and we've, we've touched on a lot of those themes, but the one thing we haven't touched on, and I, I think bears at least a, a, just a, a quick remark, is that the second inaugural is, in a certain sense, a, a kind of refutation of Stephen Douglas's popular sovereignty doctrine. Um, that, that, you know, Doug, Douglas had made that argument that these complex moral questions, you know, can't really be resolved by an appeal to abstract morality. We can only really resolve them through an appeal to the, the, the will of the people and, and the people have to decide them for themselves. And one of the things Lincoln demonstrates on, on a kind of phenomenological basis in the second inaugural address is how wrong that, that view actually is. There are some things the people, even with the might of the majority against them, um, can't do um, because they defy the will of God. And when we defy the will of God, we face divine retribution. We face punishment and judgment. And we now have the experience of the war of proof, not only of the existence of God, but of God's you know, uh, uh, judgment um of of god god's punishment on the nation for the sin of slavery yeah and i think it's it's the, the eric it's it's correct to emphasize the the nation it's collective culpability you know of the of the entire nation not just the south although the south may be more culpable he suggests right um the the the, the point about uh uh you know how could we ask a just god whether to take the you know, take the fruits of the labor from the sweat of thy brow. Um, All right. Well, we are just about out of time. Uh, I want to thank both of our, uh, our, our panelists, Joe Fournieri and hey, Eric. Thank you so much. As well as to our participants for some really terrific questions. Uh, just a reminder to everyone about the email you will receive with a link for your certificate of, uh, of participation. If you have enjoyed today's webinar, Please consider taking an online graduate course through the Ashbrook Center. Absolutely. Uh, so these are also offered as part of our MAG program. Uh, you can find more information about Ashland's online course offerings at teachingamericanhistory.org. And you can help us spread the word about these programs by sharing the archive link, which you will receive by email next week to your colleagues and on social media. Now, our next Documents in Detail webinar will be February 15th, and this will concern Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham City Jail. Wow. I will be joined on that date by Dr. Lucas Morell of Washington and Lee University and Dr. Peter Myers of the University of Wisconsin at Eau Claire. Uh, the recommended readings for that webinar have been posted, so we hope to see you back here on February 15th. A good night to all of you. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs at TAH.org webinars, or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.